Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Sam. And I'm Tessa. Joining us today to talk about a quartet of Paul Verhoeven films is our favorite Canadian. It says Canadian guest, but just favorite Canadian. I like you more than Michael J. Fox, Matt. Oh, wow. I mean, <laughs> welcome. I actually, he was, okay, second favorite Canadian. He was or like born in Edmonton, too, wasn't he? There's, there's an Edmonton connection there somewhere. Yeah. I'd rate you above Neil Young. I don't know if I can live up to that. But when we had guests on the notes, I was going to say, aren't I your only Canadian guest? That's that's yeah, the joke. Yeah, that's the yeah. joke. Oh. I mean, it's like Verhoeven. There's only one, and thank God for that. <laughs> who is? Who is? I I was thinking of um of of Avengers. Who is Verhoeven? <laughs> Where is Verhoeven? Why is Verhoeven? <laughs> why why is Verhoeven? Why are we doing this episode? Because we did like an hour on Basic Instinct the last time I was on the podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like this episode was inevitable, like considering another Avengers. Going, uh, yeah. yeah. Good job. But um, I feel like this was inevitable based on both the camp episode and the November episode that included Basic Instinct. And just knowing how much you love Verhoeven, Matt. I mean, it makes sense that we yeah. would have you like this all makes sense. All of it makes sense. The question is, why didn't we do it sooner? <laughs> well, because we didn't want to give Matt the um, I don't know if it's exactly an existential crisis, but the soul searching that I've been doing having I've never watched this much Verhoeven in like a two week sort of period before. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, why do I like this? What's wrong yeah. with me? <laughs> but we'll get into it. <laughs> you know, the the funny thing about Watching this much Verhoeven in a week's time, as you point out, not only does it make you question a lot of things, but I think the best way to approach Verhoeven is to, for the most part, assume that he's trying to say something, but he will not get it just right. And so you're left asking yourself, based on the material I have in front of me, what is it that Verhoeven thought he was doing that he got close to but didn't quite achieve? I think that's why I like him is because he's messy. And I think more filmmakers should be messy. I, there are definitely things I don't like about him, to be yeah. fair. But like, I enjoy watching his films because I never quite know where they're going to go. And I never know quite what he's going to touch on. And that's exciting, you know, especially I think in an era where films are often have to be like neat little packages. And he's an interesting filmmaker too. Cause like, kind of like when we were talking about Hitchcock last year, you can kind of put Verhoeven into certain eras, right? Like you have Verhoeven mm -hmm. getting started. You have his, like, you know, his, his Dutch films, like, Paired a lot with like Rutger Hauer. Then in the 80s, he moves over, has his period of American films, does Flesh and Blood, then Robocop, and then has this run through the 90s that we'll, we'll cover a lot here. We've talked about before with Basic Instinct. Hollow Man is, I think, like 99. And then that's. It may even be 2000. Yeah, no, maybe. But yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Um, Hollow Man is one of the ones I haven't seen, actually. And that kind of ends his run of American films because definitely you have the, the zenith of Basic Instinct. And then from Hollywood, like studio 
box office returns. It's like diminishing returns there. And that kind of ends Mm -hmm. Verhoeven's Hollywood career. And then hangs out in Europe, does those, the two French movies, the second, one of which we'll talk about today, and then does Benedetta, his his Renaissance era nun movie that just came out last year. So <laughs> Spielberg would never. <laughs> <laughs> and and good. I mean, I think it's funny that I and and I like talking about this movie. It's 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 a movie I like to casually put up in conversation because I think it's something that a lot of people have memory hold. But like the closest that Spielberg has ever gotten to be as out there as Verhoeven is, I think there's two good examples. I think Munich is one, but better example is AI. Because that, that's not really that, a Spielberg That creepy film. little not really Spielberg yeah. movie <laughs> that Spielberg directed, which, which I got to tell you, a double bill of Eyes Wide Shut and AI would be fascinating. Here's what's running through Kubrick's mind at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Check that on my to-do list. I've been meaning to rewatch AI for a long time and I haven't gotten around to it. Um, Munich's actually my, not to go too much on a Spielberg like tangent, but Munich's actually my favorite Spielberg for a lot of reasons. And also because it has that really sweaty sex, sweaty sex scene that America's yes. dad directed. And that makes me uncomfortable because it's Steven Spielberg. Yes. <laughs> That's that's you've made my point for yeah. me. I just little Dawson Leary's gonna get wrecked when he sees Munich. It's all it's it's all I say. Um, I saw both of those movies in the theater, but you know what I haven't seen in the theater? A Verhoeven movie. <laughs> I mean, I was like I seven. I was like seven when RoboCop came out. Like, I need the comfort of my own home. I feel like while watching Verhoeven, I need my things around me. You need to look around and be like, what do I see? What do I what, what do I hear? <laughs> yeah. I well, you know, and the other thing is for, for today we have two pairs of movies, which we could I think we could loosely call them pairs. There are two science fiction films. That's that's easy. And I think we could describe Showgirls and L as the erotic thriller slash anti-erotic thriller. I just want to point out that Verhoeven doesn't think Elle is an erotic thriller. That's why I'm saying yeah, it's the yeah. anti-erotic. Oh, did you think Showgirls was the anti-erotic thriller? No, no. I, I just wanted to make it very clear that like, when asked if it was an erotic thriller, he was like, no. Well, why I would I make an erotic thriller about not. this? Uh, um, so, yeah, I love this because it reminds me a lot of how Ridley Scott is really into sci-fi and historical narratives. Mm-hmm. Like historical mythological narratives but the idea of filmmakers really doing like two genres i mean i know there are a lot of filmmakers that do other genre like multiple genres but the idea of being like i do sci-fi and i do erotic or anti-erotic thrillers i i just find that to be a really cool pairing because i think we're going to talk a lot about that liminal boundary between violence and sex in this episode and i think that the way that verhoven uses sci-fi and thrillers, it allows him to come at that boundary from both sides. Like sci-fi often lends itself to talking about like more violence, more like militarized sorts of things. And erotic thrillers obviously tend to emphasize the sex side of that. And so he's able to sort of look at it from multiple perspectives, which I think is really great. It's almost like 
being a young child during Nazi occupation has long-term ramifications on your psyche into your 80s. Interesting. But we're not here to talk about Black Book today. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> oh, man. I, You know, I remember not hating that movie. Uh, and I should just stick with that and never watch it again. Uh, <laughs> but, but the first of the two movies that we're going to talk about today are movies that I've gotten to see uh, multiple times at this point. So... Um, Let's dive right in with the the 1980s classic, I think it is, the 1980s classic RoboCop. What if a man was a cop, but also a cyborg? Well, and more importantly, what if God was one of us? Just a cyborg on the bus trying to make his way home. You know, that was, that was good. I've been turning that one over in my head all day today. <laughs> very good. He's so alone. <laughs> Except for his partner, who, to be fair, got him killed. But, you know, good partner nonetheless. It was a big Nancy Allen week in my household because I had just watched um, Dress to Kill before I watched this because there's that whole erotic thrillers thing going on in the Criterion Channel this month. Verhoeven is an amateur Jesus scholar, right? So he's long been obsessed with what he refers to as the mythological tale of Jesus, even to the point, I think it was in 2007 or 2008, He published a book titled Jesus of Nazareth, A Realistic Portrait. He was part of the Jesus Seminar, which was more prevalent kind of in the mid to late 80s to the 90s and into the early 2000s, was this group of academics that got together every year and tried to draw some conclusions, do some discussions about the historical Jesus and kind of, you know, doing exegetical, um, various different exegetical or readings of scripture and find and pull out what they felt were historical truths. And Verhoeven was one of the few, if not only, I don't remember, non-academic members of, of of this seminar, this society. In a lot of ways, and I'm not the first person to point this out, Robocop is and it's kind of maybe appropriate recording this just after Easter, is the American Jesus, right? It's it's dealing with these themes of life and and rebirth and, and sacrifice and humanity. And like very specifically, I think the bulk of the film, if you're looking at the like passion narrative and the way it breaks up, most of the film occurs during the period that's referred to like theologically the harrowing of hell. So what that means in simple terms, it's after the crucifixion, but before the resurrection, Jesus is in hell conquering, I am doing some, some preaching and stuff down there, but ultimately like conquering sin, death and the devil. What I'm presupposing is again, I think that the crucifixion scene is quite obvious and it's part of the ultraviolence of the movie when, when Murphy, dies in the the steel factory and then i would presuppose that the resurrection of it all doesn't happen till the very end where he does that i'm murphy again again it's playing with this ideas of identity and what's human what's not human etc etc but that's that's where i start at reading robocop and then i go from there so are you saying are you saying and of course, temporally, this doesn't work out. But because, as you said, we're talking mostly about the he is risen happening at the end. But are you saying the screws that he takes out of his head are like taking the nails out? Or the thorns. Mm. Yeah. 
all sorts of religious imagery. In yeah. And well, I mean, it's like, well, it's like too, like when he takes, you know, when he takes his, when he takes his Darth Vader hat off <laughs> and he's Anakin again. I mean, yeah, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah. Right. Oh, I yeah. mean, and, and so, I mean, I'll give you that. I mean, I think that final climactic battle is, is he's there too. I, I would, I would, I would take it a little farther back and say when he took his hat off at that yeah. point, he was acknowledging who he fair was, enough. but it's really yeah. the same. Yeah. I mean, it's no, semantics, but it's okay. So it's the Bible. But, uh, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, Tessa, but who, who is it that demands to see the, it's Thomas, right? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, they want to, you know, prove it, prove that you're, show me your wounds. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. But that seems very similar. Yeah. yeah. And I, I also wanted to point out just because, like, there is obviously the religious overtones of it as well. But you can't talk about someone dying and then being brought as a, back as a cyborg without talking about Frankenstein yeah. and Frankenstein's monster as well. Or creature, depending on if you're talking about films or yeah. The novel doesn't matter. Um, I wrote a little bit about James Whale's Frankenstein for uh, and Bride of Frankenstein for Movie John a little while back. But some of the things that really popped out to me in this film was this idea of like unnatural reproduction, like the idea that like he dies and he's dead, like he is dead. And then they bring him back and he is not like you said he's not himself really until the end of the film but in a lot of ways this corporation wants to hold this like parental role over him this idea that like we can reproduce cops we can reproduce commodities without um heterosexual reproduction right and our cop is better than your cop because our cop doesn't need you know to to be human. It doesn't need, you know, it doesn't need all of the things that humans generally need. And so you do get this really interesting, um, this really interesting look at like the cyborg versus like the natural humans and kind of, again, that exploration of identity and normal versus abnormal um, and commodifying corpses, which I thought was actually the most horrifying part yeah. of this. The idea that like, oh, well, we own your corpse. So well, you know, it's funny because that's, uh, you know, so Dana Schwartz wrote the novel Immortality that's set right around the time that Frankenstein is also set. And she based the book on the fact that there was a very real business in cadaver obtaining. You know, basically, like there was no, you know, basically the medical schools had cadavers, but there was no way in which to get them honestly. So there were people who risked arrest to make a living off of grave robbing. That's actually in that, Tale of Two Cities as well. That's Oh, oh, are you going to bring Dickens yeah, into that's, this? Yeah, that's uh, Joe's night job that they never actually say what it is, but it's clearly what he's doing. I, I just want to say for longtime fans of Monkey, I did it. I started watching season two of Succession, and there is a reference about Charles Dickens that is made by Matthew McFadden very early on and it's it's great. But at least Frankenstein like had to steal corpses. Like he had yeah. to be surreptitious about it. Well, corporations this corporation don't have to be surreptitious like, about it. We own this shit. body. Yeah. We can do whatever we want to it. <laughs> well, but hold on. If we're going to talk about if we're going to talk about Omni, I just want to start with one thing. It's morning in America. A minute ago. Exactly. So a minute ago, you said that it was interesting doing a comparison between 
man and the cyborg. Wired is cyborg and the robot. Yes. Because that ED-209 straight up murders that dude. And everybody's like kind of fine with it, which is the weirdest part. Like, like they're shocked, but they're just kind of like, oh, well, well I, I guess he I guess, died. Uh, oh, well. Just another well. Tuesday at Omnicorp. <laughs> and it might be is the thing. It it very well might be. Yeah, I just the interesting thing about like commodifying like biological material after death is very interesting to me. It, it definitely speaks to like more of a cyborg ethics, which science fiction is very interested in also like I Sam brought this up when we started watching RoboCop and then of course it stuck with me as we watched like the other films as well like to a certain extent Verhoeven likes to play either more or less with body horror in his films and that scene where you see from his perspective as they're like you know making him into this cyborg RoboCop, the scene where they're like, well, we saved his arm. And then they're like, oh no, we don't want that. That's not, that's not helpful. Just take that off. Like that is like extremely horrifying. The idea that they're like, he's sort of conscious while they're making these like modifications to his body. And all of those decisions are based on efficiency and business decisions rather than life-saving medical decisions. We don't talk enough about how Commander Shepard is RoboCop. <laughs> That's a good mm-hmm. like like that whole idea. Like and like because like the sequence, oh, boy. the sequence you're talking about kind of remind me of the uh, not quite the opening of Mass Effect Two, but that idea where they're bringing bringing Shepard back to life and then the waking up and then falling back out of it. But road road not taken. Yeah. He just comes back, and then by the third game, everyone's like, I guess they have bigger issues to, in, in yeah. Mass Effect. <laughs> But I want to I want to run something by you to, by you both, and I have a I have a question because I think it kind of speaks to those eras a bit of of Verhoeven's career. So this is Verhoeven describing the difference between a European RoboCop and the RoboCop that he made as you know the American RoboCop. Verhoeven said that a European RoboCop would explore the spiritual and psychological problems of RoboCop's condition where the American version focuses on revenge. Are, are you saying that RoboCop puts the dirty in the dirty Harry? <laughs> he puts the wish in death wish. I'd say put the straw in straw dogs, but that's actually set in England. So, <laughs> Well, and even like going a little bit kind of further back, Peter Weller, who is actually a pretty interesting cat. Um, he's like an art history prof or something like that. Um, Weller described RoboCop as the next evolution of the straight-laced hero of the 40s. Like, think of your your Gary Coopers, your Jimmy Stewarts, et cetera, et cetera, kind of, again, reaching into those Westerns who live life honorably. But the main difference being, as modern audiences reflect on him that way and are cheering for our, you know, whatever happened to the Gary Cooper types, we're cheering a maimed police officer brought back from the dead that's taking brutal revenge. Well, it's very similar more than, I, I mean, this is a place to talk about High Noon, which, you yes. know, is, is not my favorite, but that's that's the Gary Cooper role that, you know, taking the action that he does is very self-destructive. And and that's the tension of the movie. Um, and so I think that does definitely have some direct comparisons to... He's movie. also, RoboCop is also Superman because 
the bullets literally bounce off of him, which is. I thought, uh, yeah, okay. I thought you were going to say Robocop was Jewish, but. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Might have been. <laughs> Might have been. It was to know. Um, Nobody asked him. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that this is a really interesting. Um, I mean, I guess I might as well just say it with RoboCop because we're just going to keep coming back to it in these films. <laughs> Verhoeven believes that the U.S. is very violent and is, which it is, and is very interested in looking at how that violence plays out in different U.S. institutions, in this case with the cops, because like this is set in like a future Detroit, which is very purposeful, um, although it doesn't, of course, because it's Verhoeven, it doesn't want to talk about why Detroit has that particular yeah. reputation. The idea that like these cops are like besieged in this city is very like, I mean, it feels almost like copaganda, but the the way that Verhoeven is looking at this makes it very clear that the problem is actually the corporate control of the city it's not necessarily like the idea that like crime is just running rampant because we find out that the worst criminal the cop killer is actually working for the vp of the company yeah it's and like i think there's there's a possible reading of robocop that has some interest in even our earlier discussion about the commodification of of murphy of robocop's body um and it being property to you know further the the capitalist interests of omnicorp and and build that new city so like there's an interesting flavor or like labor specific lens you could look at this movie but again because it's focused on policing and that's the setting cops aren't workers police unions aren't aren't real unions they're not really part of organized labor and kind of the the traditional sense because again they ultimately are an authoritarian arm of the state of the status quo so like there it has i think yeah there ha- like with a lot of verhoven's work and i think this might be a a theme that comes up from the other discussions some of it it's like what are you trying to say taking it a little bit at face value but then also i don't know if it's like a demographics thing or like being that outsider commenting on american culture the roads he doesn't take where it's like this kind of doesn't work because of that but i get what you're maybe trying to say i don't know although i do love the solution of well first of all a corporate run police force yeah is interesting like and you can't say that's actually not kind of what we have now in some ways putting that to the side the idea that the that the the cops would be like no, we're going to we might go on strike because of like the things that you're having us do and the danger that we're in. And Omnicorp's response is, oh, well, we'll just make a cop that doesn't need those yeah. things like that is like peak. Yeah. That's peak corporate America right there. We'll just make a better product um, so we don't have to work with people, basically. But anytime you talk about like so- using someone's literal body yeah. like to to accomplish something, it's always going to be about labor, like in some yeah. way or another. I was fascinated by the new city idea. I kind of wish, I don't know, maybe in the sequel, they explore that idea a little bit more, but the idea that they're going to build, like they want this city to kind of collapse. So the new one can 
emerge and like it's very clearly going to be built for rich yeah, people like they don't actually say that but like the way that it's framed is very like oh this is where the rich people can move mm-hmm. so that way they don't have to deal with crime yeah, i mean it's walt disney's epcot like in five years when the insects invade yeah. the people in that city are not the ones who have to join up to get citizenship right exactly do yeah. you want to know more yeah <laughs> That's Click the yes. other thing about RoboCop that I think is great that he continues into Starship Troopers is the use of the media yeah. as a framing mm-hmm. narrative. Like the way that they have these these like little what what are they like three minute news segments? Yeah. Is, that, is that what they call they're, themselves? They're just news segments. Yeah. <laughs> but no, they say like it's three minutes, like all the news you need in like three minutes or less. Like it's very much like that you overlap. You did not grow up watching. Well, no, I'm just saying, like, it's very much that overlap of, like, news and entertainment. Like, our audience does not have the attention span Mm -hmm. to go longer than this. And the way that the media is used to frame everything, it is very much a critique of the way that the media often valorizes cops and the media often reports on news in a way that's not completely genuine or transparent which I think is really interesting. I even think that's an element in in Showgirls as well, as like how they move the, the media and, and the interviews. And like, I think it's one of Verhoeven's observations about North American culture specifically. And I think it's more, more overt in Robocop and then again in Starship Troopers with the, those interstitial things. But like even in Showgirls, there's rarely a scene where there isn't a TV present, right? And yeah. like the, like the, the ever-presentness of, of that... There was another Verhoeven quote that I thought was interesting. I mean, interesting is, I think, a way you can classify his whole oeuvre. But like <laughs> specifically about Robocop again, but I think you can, can see this reoccurring throughout his work. Quote, I don't make political statements. I'm just reflecting things in the culture. See, anytime someone says that, I think bullshit yeah. because I'm like, everything is political. Yeah. Like once you get right down to it, especially if you're just going to say, I reflect things in the culture, that's a political yeah. statement. But I I understand what he's trying to say. And then, um, and then introducing, yeah. like, I want to talk about the violence a little bit. And that is, like, a theme kind yes, of, like, we have to. throughout. And we see it, like, I think it, I don't even know if it's dialed up a bit more, but we see it again in the, the practical effects, the Phil Tippett of it all in Starship Troopers. But it is so violent, it is almost circles back again to, like, cartoonish. But I think there's an element of violence in that this movie that is violence as pornography, right? And that same sort of like salacious feeling of like, you know, sneaking into the, well, maybe this is dating myself and I never actually did this, but like the adults only section at the, the, the blockbuster or, you know, catching something scrambled on, on cable or, you know, you're hovering your finger over the, the last recall button. Cause it's Saturday night and whatever's on discovery channel, right? Like those, I was gonna say foundational experiences. I don't think they're foundational anymore. It's all on the internet for free. Um, but the same, like I shouldn't be watching this. I am. I'm like excited about this. Oh my God. Robocop just shot a guy in the dick. Ha ha ha! Like like the entertainment aspect, like you were saying, like there's this this I shouldn't like this, but I do. Like what if? Like you know, that's the the provocateuring, I guess, is how I describe it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think 
that's something, again, I think that that's like that line that he wants to explore in most, if not all of his films. Like, when does violence become porn? When does porn become violence? Like, where, you know, where are the exact, like, he wants to, he wants to cross that boundary in all of his movies. It just depends on which way he's sort of facing. And this, he's sort of facing that, like, I'm going to go through violence straight to porn. I mean, it's, it's like how RoboCop is like the it's he's supposed to be like you said that Gary Cooper like ideal of masculinity but he goes so far into that masculinity that it almost comes back around again like it it's it's a caricature of itself in a lot of ways and he's not even like a person he's a cyborg so like that makes it even like a a, a real man couldn't even be as masculine as him because he's partially machine which i think is interesting can we also talk about how silly and dumb Dick Jones and his robot defeated by stairs is? <laughs> I like, I don't think I realized until that point in the film how I was like, oh, this guy isn't smart. Like, I, I mean, like I his he was demo like this- literally got a person murdered and the thing can't walk downstairs. Yeah, like he's so yeah. like into this idea of this robot that he like cannot admit that all uh, someone would have to do is walk downstairs and it would just like this not is, work anymore. This is Bush era defense at its best. And and I know what you're thinking. Which one? To which I would answer, oh. yes. <laughs> yes. But I, I really thought, I thought it was interesting how for most of the film, Dick Jones kind of tricks you into thinking he's this like like conniving like intelligent, like ultimate boss of a corporate leader. But then you sort of realize as you go through the film that he like is very, his egotisticalness is actually has him like inflating his own ability to um, understand what's going on. And so like you realize like how silly he is actually as a villain. And I really love, I was reading Terry Pratchett for my other um, podcast. And there's a, there's a moment in, one of Terry Pratchett's books where the main character says like, it's always a turning point when you realize that the people, the people who run things don't actually know what they're doing. And I really felt like there was that moment here where you're like, Oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's just like business, 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 but he's not even doing good business, which I just, I found that fascinating as a critique. You ready to talk about casting a little bit of RoboCop? Yeah. Yes. I'm so excited to talk about the cast. I've got some fun stuff for you. All right, please hold your applause until the end. There's so many people in First this. First of all, and we're going to get to Peter Weller, but I just, there is kind of an incredible thing that happens here. So let's start with Kurtwood Dumbass Smith. <laughs> of course we know him from that 70s show. But I just want you to know that he was a regular in the seventh season of 24. Moving on. Miguel Ferrer who we love, was uh, one of the federal agents on everybody's favorite weird show by the other weird dude, (laughs) Twin Peaks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, weird European, weird American. Miguel Ferrer, like, like like many actors of his time, was on a little show called ER, one of whose stars 
was Paul McCrane, who's also in this movie. I just need to point out that we were watching this movie and during the police chase uh, in the van at the beginning, I was like, is that Rocket Romano driving the car? I would recognize the back of that head anywhere. The worst part is, is that even though his character is awful in RoboCop, he's still not as awful as Rocket Romano is in ER. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Moving on to talk about another member of, of our gang is Ray Wise. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't he in Twin Peaks and 24? Yes. (laughs) By the way, I haven't brought up Peter Weller. Did you know he was in 24? I did. I'm starting to see a pattern here of RoboCop actors going on to be in 24. You know, not all patterns, not all patterns are, are great. You know, sometimes there are irregularities in the pattern. So, Very quickly, Dick Jones himself, Ronnie Cox, not as far as I know, a star in either 24 or Twin Peaks, but he did play Captain Edward Jellicoe in two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, as well as in an episode of Star Trek Prodigy. Yeah, there's a lot of Star Trek connections with this cast as well, on a couple different vectors. Absolutely. But I want to finish up with The Old Man. Played by Daniel O'Herlihy. Ronald Reagan himself. Who played Andrew Packard in Twin Peaks. <laughs> I just had Jazz the hands. silliest idea of what would a, a Star 24 Trek... A and Twin Peaks crossover? Yes, please. No. David Lynch, please direct. Call Kiefer. Make it happen. I can die a happy person. I haven't seen either one, so I don't even know what that would be like. No, I was thinking, what would a Star Trek Wonderful. episode directed by Verhoeven look like? I'd watch that. <laughs> Picard season four coming soon. <laughs> the tagline, it can't be worse than season two. <laughs> blink, blink, blink. That's like there's that Tarantino CSI, like original flavor CSI episode. That was a pretty straight yes. CSI episode until like that one autopsy scene, which was like a little bit weird. But yeah. And he directed an episode of ER as oh, well. I believe that is correct. I might be wrong, but I don't in. think so. I mean, Verhoeven has a history in sci-fi. Yeah. It makes sense. You know, by the way, uh, Tarantino didn't come up earlier, but I think Tarantino, the later he got in his career, the messier yes. of a director he became. And I I think, that's some, I think that messiness is perhaps like Verhoeven, something that works in his favor. What do I know? And, and how much is, the, like, again, I don't want to go too far down this, but I have to get this thought out while it's in my head. How much of that is, like, a credit to them? And how much of that is an indictment of a lot of the other, like, films and the society writ large? Where, like, you mm. know what I mean? Like, chicken, it's, it's a chicken or the egg well, question for sure, but. The, the answer is probably both. I have a to question to throw back at you. So it was recently revealed that Martin Scorsese's new film is nearly four hours long. Because he was given streaming money to make The Irishman, and he was given streaming money to make this new movie. This is this is beyond messiness. This is overindulgence, I I think. And I don't know. Wouldn't you prefer messy? As opposed to overindulgent? Or are you equating yes. the same? Yeah. Yes. No, I think overindulgent is 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 past messy. 
There are still guardrails on Messy. It's just the product turned in is... Well, and Messy's fun, usually. It like, can be. Like, there's some, like, fun elements to Messy where you're like, this person is trying something. I don't know if they're succeeding, but they're trying something. Overindulgent is like... It's like... The gaze turned back on itself. It, it messy is like seeing Elizabeth Berkeley's acting choices or acting skill one way or the other and saying, okay, we'll release that movie. That's messy. <laughs> but we'll get to that. I don't know. Anything else we want to talk about about RoboCop before moving on to? I had not seen it before. It was a monkey for me. And I know that surprises a lot of people. I yeah. am excited to watch it again when I eventually get to it in my column. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I'm really upset that Xander Berkeley wasn't in this movie. It feels like he should have been. It really does feel like he should have been. Who there was in many episodes people. of 24, so <laughs> it even fits the thing. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the sequels. And like, to be honest, I haven't been that interested to because I am content with RoboCop as it sits now as a single work in my mind have you seen basic instinct 2 i haven't but that i kind of want to because it looks really bad <laughs> have you seen showgirls 2 i have not that i also don't have, have you seen starship troopers 2 or 3 so i haven't but <laughs> 2 is a phil Tippett movie so maybe i don't know i think it's so funny that so many of verhoven's movies become franchises or sequel or at least have sequels allegedly he might and then the i can't remember the screenwriter's names right now allegedly they're working on a direct sequel like a robocop return sort of deal that Verhoeven may or may not do doing the like halloween 2018 thing where it forgets everything else and it's just a direct sequel to like the other movie but well, well i'll believe that when i see it but then again, we did get Top Gun 2 eventually, so who knows? That's right. As long as Gordon Green's not involved, <laughs> we'll be good. Danny McBride might be there. That's fine. I think I'd be okay with that. Showgirls. Is a movie. Porn is violence. <laughs> yeah, this is the other side of, like, he's pointed the other direction in this one. I, I would like to full-throatedly say that I love this movie. I can't because of something that happens very near the end. But if you took that out, <laughs> I would say that. I actually really enjoyed this movie. It's not good, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I mean, except for, again, the thing at the end, which we definitely need uh, to talk perhaps, about. Perhaps just very, very quickly to interrupt, since I didn't do this for RoboCop. <clears throat> RoboCop, set in the near future of Detroit, features a police officer brutally murdered but then rescued by a corporation and turned into a cyborg police officer. Showgirls, a down-on-her-luck girl hitchhikes her way to the city of dreams. Nope, that's not what it's called. Las Vegas to try and achieve her dreams. She does not. It's Jesse Spano from Saved by the Bell. There. So I think... Showgirls is interesting because it's coming off the heels, the reteaming of Joe Asterhouse as the screenwriter and Verhoeven as the director off the success of Basic Instinct. And this is the one where they wrote the pitch on like the napkin and was famous sort of like, you know, they were Asterhouse was blitzed out of his mind or on something and then had this idea and wrote it on a napkin. And because Basic Instinct was was so like 
successful, they got to make this movie. It's porn is violence, but then violence. And this is, again, I think this is one of the themes that is throughout definitely at least all four of the the films we're talking about today, but violence as it relates to power and power as it relates to control. And I think the the movie ultimately is about how Nomi navigates those structures. Um, I think it's not similar, but like an intent kind of similar in idea to what Michelle does in, in L later. Michelle, excuse me, does in, in L later. It's also like a stealth remake of A Star is Born. It's all about Eve. There's even there's even the shot at the beginning where she's in uh where she meets Crystal in her dressing room and Crystal looks up and sees her standing behind her in the mirror. That's a direct shot that's in All About Eve. I mean, there is a consideration of of an inversion of A Star Is Born made here, and perhaps that's one of the greatest claims to Showgirls' infamy is that it is an inversion of A Star Is Born by way of remaking All About Eve. Like, making that connection is interesting. I mean, I love All About Eve. It is one of my favorite films, like, of all time. It is my Citizen Kane. But I will say that Showgirls does try to answer the question, what if Margot and Eve were more queer? Which I appreciate. You know, that would be a good addition to All About Eve in my opinion. You think queerness would be a good addition to everything? I mean, it would be to everything. I mean, I'm not saying it's not there. I meant to say this at the beginning of the episode, but I'll say it now. As the poet Janelle Monae said, see if everything is sex, except sex, which is power, you know, power is just sex. You screw me and I'll screw you too. Everything is sex, except sex, which is power. You know, power is just sex. Now ask yourself who's screwing you. That to me is like this film like it is very much about sex as a method of control um both in terms of the way that women's bodies especially although men's bodies too are controlled within the entertainment industry but then also sort of the tactics that the dancers themselves use um in order to carve out little spaces for themselves within that strategy of control so it it's a very it's an interesting idea i don't hate it conceptually it's really cynical i hate almost every single decision about how they try to accomplish that before we just go any further i mean to know anything about this movie is to have lived through this time and to be aware of just how big of a joke this movie was I would point out that it has made it is a very profitable film over the years. It has made back its budget many times over. It is one of MGM's better money makers, oddly enough. It did destroy, for all intents and purposes, any hope that Elizabeth Berkeley would continue to have a big screen career. Ironically, though, Gina Gershon would go on to make an even better erotic thriller the next year which we have talked about on this very podcast, Bound. And by the way, Kyle MacLaughlin, Mr. Twin Peaks himself, did not seem to suffer for this role either. So I I think one thing that's very interesting coming out of this film is that Nomi is the victim, at least in terms of the person who portrayed her. And here's the question. 
I I want to ask this. I've asked this of Tessa. I want you to weigh in on this, Matt. Now, you know, I don't know if you grew up on Saved by the Bell like I did, but I've seen a fair amount of Elizabeth Berkeley's acting work. I've seen a fair amount of Mark Paul Gossler's work, Tiffany Thiessen's work, and I've seen the, them. I've seen all of them go on to later projects. I know they all know how to act on some level. That does not explain what happens in this movie. So my question to you, is Elizabeth Berkeley a bad actor or is this direction? I'm going to potentially frustrate you and say I think she's actually really good in this movie. <laughs> I do too. Right? That's the yeah. point. And and like and, and I think too like once like and I think it's definitely probably better and you can see more what the intent is on the rewatch once kind of like the I guess if you haven't watched it and don't want to be spoiled, um, skip ahead a couple seconds or maybe this whole segment because you won't want to talk about what we're going to talk about at the end. Um, but the idea of like Nomi's identity and that idea of like the performative nature of it, like I don't think she's, she's not acting like a real human at ease and comfortable and whatever, but like Nomi isn't doing that either. Right. Like it's the idea of like being run and picking up like new identity. Like it's the five easy pieces thing. Right. Like, you're you're running from something so like you're changing and you're putting on different hats and she's trying to navigate all these structures around her she gets picked up and then abandoned and robbed in in vegas and then what's what's the only option that she sees forward for her initially it's sex work stripping in the club and then okay now i'm a dancer now and then at the end she's she's off to be maxine in in, in hollywood right so i don't know i i I, if you want to talk about like the performances that I think are not great in this movie is I don't think Kyle McLaughlin's really fairly good in this. I think his performance no. oh, is not great. at all. And uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the actor who plays James, the uh, bouncer mm-hmm. slash dancer. I don't think he's very great. Who is, by the way, a recurring character in season one of what's that? ER. So like I can see if you're watching it the first time and Elizabeth Berkeley gets the most screen time and you're like, this isn't working for me. What is this movie? Blah, 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 blah. Within the context of patriarchy, I get why the fixation was on her. But again, I based on having seen the whole script and seen the movie a couple times, I actually think she's really good in this. I think so too. And, and knowing that she was far from the first choice for this film, you know, it doesn't, do her any favors because I'm I'm fairly certain that was not a secret as it was also not a secret that she was doing this to like set fire to her previous work yeah. she was pulling Elisa Bonet yeah. which for those of you who don't know look up Angel Heart you are welcome you also get to see Mickey Rourke before he got his face bashed in several times so again you're welcome you know who is good in this, though? Gina Gershon, who is just amazing in every scene, and I love her. It was so weird, though, because I didn't actually recognize her at first because I was so used to seeing her like as the character from Bound. Yeah. I think she's fantastic, and honestly, I wish this movie was more about their relationship um, without some of the distracting other things that are going on. You mean Kyle McLaughlin? Yeah, exactly. Okay, got it. (laughs) I love it. I think she's great. And I loved what you said, Sam, because you pointed out the thing about 
the two of them and how because uh, Crystal's always telling Nomi we're the same and Nomi's always like, no, we're not. But then you pointed out the the Crystal, Crystal, Versace, Versace. The whole Versace joke in the movie. And uh, it, you know, when she's over at Colin McLaughlin's house later on in the movie, that's when that's she gets corrected again because she calls the champagne Crystal, which is what Crystal's named herself after. Crystal. Mm-hmm. It's like they are down to that detail, the same person, which is great. Versace. See, that's the most interesting thread of this whole film, I think. Yeah. And if I think if they had focused on it being an all about Eve remake, but in Vegas and with those elements that we'd been talking without about, without the think worst sex scene ever, without the worst sex scene ever, without the rape, um, I feel like this movie would have been a lot better. You know what the better... This is one of the ones where I'm like, this is too messy. <laughs> it needs to be edited. You know what the better version of this is? Is Hustlers. Yes. yes. Thank you for saying that because I was, as I was watching this film, trying to think of another movie besides A Star is Born and All About Eve because I was like, All About Eve did this better. A Star is Born did this better. And I'm pretty sure I thought of Hustlers, but then I forgot and it's been bothering me for days. Can you, so can thank you, you for saying that. Gina Gershon, come into my fur. Come into under my fur. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. This is a movie. This is a real movie. And and speaking of edits, by the way, yeah, I, I think we should mention this too. That so in uh, of course this film is also notorious for having an NC seventeen rating, which okay, whatever. That's for the bad dancing. Yeah, I mean, so so the film is uh, uh, I believe it's one hundred and thirty one minutes long to basically be available to be rented at Blockbuster Video. It needed to be edited down to the equivalent of an R. So it went from 131 minutes to 20 uh, to 128 minutes, which isn't a lot. Now let's talk about the music channel known as VH1. Once it stopped playing music, it had to show something instead. And so it used to show music movies. And then it showed movies that, I don't know, had music in them. <laughs> and they showed Showgirls. And I know what you're thinking. How can you show showgirls on basic cable? Well, I'll tell you. They digitally inserted bras and panties. Mm -hmm. And I know what you're thinking. That's only going to get you so far. You're right. They digitally inserted bras and panties into the, into the, not into the 45 minutes they took out because they took 45 minutes out of the film. That's right. The running time of of the the film as broadcast on TV is, I believe, under 90 minutes. Do they cut out all the Andrew Carver stuff? That's a good question. I mean, I almost feel like they'd have to. I mean, that's the whole third. I mean, like, should we go ahead and talk about that? I mean, I don't think we want to, but we're kind of dancing around it. We should. Yeah. Okay. So... Seated, and the other thing is, seated in the first and second acts of this movie are references to a musician known as Andrew Carver that Nomi's roommate Molly has a huge crush on. Right? So that's that's seated fairly early on in the movie. And then finally, towards the end of the movie, he appears and bad things happen. I did not need this scene. Like, did you not need it? I, well, so here's the question I don't think this adds anything to like. 
what he's trying to say, like okay. at all. I mean, I get it. I understand why it's here because he really wanted to like underscore what he was saying with two like really bold lines, but I did not need this for this film to make sense or for him to get across what he was trying to say. I didn't need it at all. I hated it. So what we're talking about here is that Andrew Carper takes Molly up to his hotel room and along with his two goon slash bodyguards proceeds to brutally assault and, and rape her. And no, I, I think you're going beyond saying we didn't need to see the scene. I think you're saying the scene didn't need to happen by implication either. But what happens as a result of this scene is what eventually culminates in Nomi's exit from Las Vegas. She goes to Andrew Carver under the guise of somebody who's going to have sex with him and brutally assaults him in a very dirty, hairy, death wish sort of way to go back to what we were talking earlier about with with Robocop. So are you saying none of that's necessary, just to be clear? No, I don't. I actually think they could have talked about the way that Las Vegas has this, like, yeah, it's what he says at the end. Like, he was playing at this club, but he might play at this casino one day, or he might Mm -hmm. play at this casino. They could have had that conversation without any of this. Yeah. To me, this was unnecessary. It only exists, I think, in order for her to have that revenge scene. But the revenge doesn't make as much sense in this movie as it does in RoboCop because it doesn't really add anything to her character. Right. And we've been taught this movie wants to talk about the nuances of how power and violence and sex all exist in this situation. And this just it doesn't feel like it's part of the rest of the film. Well, this I mean, that's this is supposed to be where she attacks him. It's supposed to be the catharsis, the release of the film. See, I think the catharsis is when she spits in Kyle McLaughlin's character's face. What do you think, Matt? Oh boy. Um, I, I understand how it functions structurally within the story. I think it's really shitty to basically have the Molly character around through all of this, just to have her be a device to give Nomi a reason to shake the illusions of, I would say the illusions of Hollywood, but like the illusions of the, the arc that she's climbed by, by stepping on crystal and pushing her down the stairs and like all of that, like, Nomi realizes she's implicit become complicit to this this system through Molly, but it's like when it's one of your only black characters that exists in the whole third act just to be insulted to teach your teacher lead a lesson, it's um not great, Bob. Yeah, it just it 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 reeks of and whether this was Verhoeven or or Esther House, I I don't know. Hard to say. Um, I mean, Esther House is Joe Esther House. We'll just just leave it at that. Yeah, it's it's like trying to be edgy for the sake of being edgy, and like I think it goes it goes over the um, mm-hmm. over. I would say the line of taste, but this movie doesn't have any taste. Um, no, but it's like there is no line. There's to that. there's pushing the line, and then there's like. It feels like it's there for shock value. Yeah, 100%. More yeah. than anything Especially else. the way in which it goes down where it's like with the bodyguards and like, I mean, rape mm-hmm. is inherently violent, but there's all the stuff, before, right? So. 
I don't know. Yeah, it's just I I just don't think it needed to be here. There were so many ways that they could have gotten that moment. Now, okay. Now I do want to point out a a interesting little historical coincidence. There was another movie set in the same town released in the same year that features a very similar scene involving a group of men and a woman. Now, differently than Molly, this woman's a sex worker, but her portrayer, Elizabeth Shue, was nominated for an Oscar. She didn't win. The, the poor schmuck who helped her out did. I am, of course, talking about Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas. I just It's a really interesting coincidence that these movies came out in the same year and they both feature a very similar horrific act. And I mean, I was very uncomfortable when I saw that scene for the first time. I, I was not yet 18. Not that has anything to do with it, but it was, it was the first time I had seen something like that uh, on a screen or anywhere. And it, I mean, have you seen Leaving Las Vegas by any chance, Matt? I have not, but I just found out it is on Tubi. So I'm interested where they put the commercial breaks. You, yeah, you could, uh, judging from something I saw that many years ago, I'd be hard pressed to say that you could take that scene out of Leaving Las Vegas because of where it sits in the movie and what it does, which is the difference between here and Showgirls. I, I buy that you could take it out and have a movie. Uh, Leaving Las Vegas depends on it a little bit more. But I do think, and this could go back to the idea of Verhoeven and Ezra House with basic instinct as well, is to say that when we talk about things that we just soon not even be on film or happen in real life, so we have to talk about, so we don't have to talk about whether or not they should be on film. Where is that line truly? You know, so so with Showgirls, as as we pointed out, there's no line, so... Anything goes, which is my, maybe how we got into this predicament to begin with. But compare that to basic instinct with what I think we have established is also a rape that happens uh, with uh, Triple Horn's character. It turns into it, is what we've talked about. And we, we've had discussions about that scene, which is heavily edited yeah. in, in some versions. I saw basic instinct a couple months ago at the theater for the first time. And it was the theatrical version. It was the first time I'd seen the theatrical version. And us mm-hmm. having talked about how it takes out Beth snow was, a, yeah, it was a very different experience. Mm. You know, it's just, it's it, it, Verhoeven's never going to be a master of nuance or a nay, an apprentice of nuance, but I don't know. There's a lot there to think about, not in terms of the scene, which I, I okay, leave it out. Guess we don't have to talk about that, but but what it means to put something like that in a film like this, or Basic Instinct, or Leaving Las Vegas, or the numerous other films that have something like it, and it it gets a little bit to the heart of what we're doing and why, and where a line might be in terms of storytelling versus mm, aesthetic morality questions. I think. I might have a bit of an answer to this and it also helped me kind of realize something that I think ultimately. Thank you for acknowledging that was a question. (laughs) What? Oh yeah. (laughs) I am not anti-sexual assault in films. I think you just have to be very, very careful 
about how you use it as a plot point and how you portray it. I actually don't hate Elle, which is another film that we're going to talk about here in a little bit that very prominently features rape, which we will discuss. But, and and there are several other things. Um, what is that film that um, Michaela Cole did or that series that Michaela Cole did? I May Destroy You. Yeah, so I May Destroy You is also about this. And like, I... Because it's a real issue, I think, that art does have something that to say, and you can say things about this that are good or that use it in a responsible way. I don't... The scene in Basic Instinct makes me uncomfortable, but it also, I think, is supposed to tell us something about these two characters. Yeah, it serves character, 100%. Like, it's supposed agree. to tell us... Sorry. Yeah, it serves the character. This doesn't serve any character. I don't even think it really serves Nomi all that well. And the other thing that I think this does, you're absolutely right, Matt, in the sense that like she only exists, Molly only exists in this third act for this to happen to her. So that way Nomi can, it's like a fridging, but, but for a female character. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I think what I realized when you said that is I am way more interested in the relationships between the women characters in this film and the ways in which they subtly or not subtly push back against like these um these structures of power i would rather this film be about that relationship between molly and nomi and uh, gina gerson's character crystal and nomi than for it to be about this because there are a lot of ways and this goes back to all about eve there are a lot of ways in which women are pitted against each other in these industries which i think crystal kind of embodies in this film but there are also ways in which they make relationships and they are able to sort of negotiate some power um, little pockets of power and little pockets of autonomy for themselves, which again, we start to see in this film, but it's not explored. Instead, this is explored and not very well. And so I think maybe that's why I hate it so much is because I felt like this character actually, I loved their relationship. I thought they were going to like have a queer love fest in that trailer that, that, that Molly, you know, invites Nomi back to. I mean, they did, right? I mean, surely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, at some point, but like, you know, I, I just thought it was such a waste of this character to just reduce her down to this act of violence at the end instead of giving her, because she's also part of the industry. She's a seamstress, yeah. right? She's intimately involved in this. And so I, I maybe it's because it's for Hoven. Maybe it's because it's a bunch of men who made this. I don't know. But like there is the potential here. These characters do exist and they are good characters, um, and they could have actually explored this in a way that was interesting instead of going for that shock value and sort of hitting us over the head with the um, the sex and violence and, and power thing here at the end. Because um, that's the end of All About Eve. The end of All About Eve is that Margot decides not to play anymore, right? And Eve mm -hmm. discovers that someone else is right behind her just like she was right behind Margot. And so, like, I think that that would have been a much more interesting way of talking about these characters than whatever this is. So before we move on, and I will point out that if we remove this scene from Showgirls, we still get a kind of uh, similar catharsis scene in Black Book, I, I, I believe, at the very end of that movie. It's very different, but 
there is woman doing revenge there after a fashion. I had two questions to finish this out before we move on to insect. My kill, favorite. Insects and military butts. <laughs> do we like, do we like this movie? I like parts of this movie <laughs> a lot. That's about as far as I'm willing to go. All right. I don't think the whole is definitely not the sum of its parts. Okay. Matt, do we like this movie? After that very thoughtful (laughs) discussion on, you know, on the the occurrences of the last act, I, I feel kind of bad saying this, but yeah, I do. And like, I know it's not, I know it's, incredibly messy and i like something that amuses me is if you look on letterbox you know how it has the bar graph of the average rating mm-hmm. of all the users mm-hmm. the showgirls one <laughs> is the most interesting it's a v isn't no, it no it, it's like all through it's like it's just really interesting it's like a wave where it goes up and like down like so it's not quite wow. a v but okay. like it's just it's interesting it's one of the most interesting ones to kind of look at oh wow yeah. look at that we're, we're looking yeah. at it right now huh okay no, I think I I think I think what you just said. We had this extended conversation about this very unfortunate, brutal, perhaps unnecessary, probably unnecessary scene. Followed up by, yeah, I like the movie. That is Verhoeven. Verhoeven has won, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like all the opulence of like the dancing yeah. and the costumes, and it's just like the, one of the greatest acts of resistance Nomi does as a dancer, she eats a fucking cheeseburger. Right? So, oh, I, I love I love this. Uh, I think the answer to this question is probably a mere Google away. But uh, yeah, the whole thing about showgirls parties and showgirl midnight screenings, they had to take that out, right? They have to take that scene out, right? That is a total buzzkill. Among other things, like if this is well, I bet you though there was a lot of cheering during the well, yeah, where she like. Well, I'm fine with that. Let's just, I mean, even if you take it off, I like, I don't know. Anyway, okay. Final question. Final question, Matt. This is for you. If we were doing an erotic thriller fantasy draft, who are you gonna take? Sharon Stone or Gina Gershon? You gonna take? You gonna take Basic Instinct and Sliver, or are you going to take Showgirls and Bound? I'm taking Kathleen Turner from um, Body Heat. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Tessa got to pick pick first, and that's who she picked. I mean, probably Sharon Stone's one A and Gina Gershon's one mm. B. It depends on the day. It depends on the day. I, I would be happy to be able to pick Gina Gershon if you foolishly chose Sharon Stone. <laughs> also, uh, quick uh, Matt reference to High Fidelity if you've seen it or read it. Kathleen Turner Overdrive <laughs> is the name of Jack Black's band at the end of the, or the character Jack Black plays. Oh, we have fun here. Yes. Um, now we get to your monkey. For the week. Mm, well, the next two were both monkeys. Oh, that's true. So, but let's get to the year after Showgirls. <laughs> if you, to quote, to, to paraphrase John Oliver, if I gave you a million guesses, <laughs> you would never guess Starship Troopers is the movie that comes after. <laughs> you would never say Robocop, but in space with killer insects. You would never 
never guessed that. You would ironically guess the entire plots of L, Black Book, and Benedetta. But you would never guess Starship Troopers. Well, because he'd moved out of that, that you know, Total Recall Robocop mode, right? And you're like, oh, he's not going back. I forgot about Total Recall. Right? So I, I have a theory, but I'm going to wait. I don't really like Total Recall, so it's not a <laughs> surprise. I like the practical effects in Total Recall, I think. Total, but yeah, it's, it's not one of my favorites. Why watch Total Recall when the running man is right there? <laughs> I've actually seen right, right there. But yeah, genre wasn't something you went back to. You could get your start in genre, mm-hmm. but once you made yes. serious adult films like Checks Notes, Showgirls, um, you didn't go back. <laughs> A- adult film is definitely a double entendre there. Good job. <laughs> you, you didn't go back to genre, but uh, the Robocop crew all got back together and Verhoeven was like, hey, what if I made a movie that was in the style of fascist girl boss Lenny Reifenstahl and uh, made a Nazi propaganda film for the future but it's a satire this this film is <laughs> was it Nazi girl boss was 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 that it and we're supposed to root for them <laughs> uh, okay i have one thing to say and then tessa you can you can sum up this film very quickly in your announcer voice i fucking hate denise richards character she knows what she did the wrong one lived. Sam has lots of opinions about about the death that it's happens. It's really just that one. At the beginning of the last, last act of this film. Starship Troopers is based on a 1959 novel by Robert Heinlein, which I want to get to here in a minute because I think that this is Verhoeven being very, very funny. This film is, like you said, it's kind of a propaganda. It it feels like a propaganda film, but satirical. It basically is about Earth in the future where the entire society is militarized and they are currently engaged in a war with with a planet slash species of bugs. Giant bugs. Very them. It's, uh, it's a real thing. I really want to know, because I've read Starship Troopers. Have you read Starship Troopers, Matt? I have not. My father gave me Starship Troopers when I was in middle school, because my father is a conservative and loves retro science fiction. And so I read this before even knowing (laughs) there was a film. And I have to say that when I saw this film originally, when I was in my early 20s, I could not stop laughing because if you don't know about the novel, the novel is this, but playing it straight. Robert Heinlein was one of the rare anti-communists of the 50s sci-fi writers. He has more in common with Ayn Rand than he does with the other sci-fi authors that of his time. That is never how you want to hear yourself <laughs> described, by the way. You have a lot Maybe in common with Ayn Rand. Fuck yeah. you. This this book, like all those themes of militarism and like how the inalienable rights of life, liberty and happiness actually causes moral decline and like all of that stuff. He really believed that like that is a thing that really exists in this book. This book doesn't have so much as a plot as it is just an existential treatise on like how America sucks right now because nobody knows how to like take responsibility for anything anymore. You know, those young boomers that were ruining everything in 1959. Anyway, and I just, I really wonder, I want to know why Verhoeven made this film. I would love to know 
I, I just feel like he read this novel and thought, I don't even have to do that much to make this a satire. Like this in and of itself is almost a satire on its own. This really feels like Verhoeven is like doing two giant middle fingers at Heinlein. Like it is it is the opposite of everything Heinlein wants in his book. So it's really funny when you do a satire of something, but you don't actually have to change very much. Um, and to me, that is the brilliance of Starship Troopers it's, as a film. It's like the last five years in America. <laughs> oh, wait, yeah. I'm sorry. Seven years. Pretty much. So, yeah, I mean, what do we want to start with? Do we want to talk about the fascism or the violence or the militarization? Fascism, violence. There's no rape in this one. <laughs> the so media? we can't go there. Diz shouldn't have died. I'm very aware of your fondness for Diz. I, I said to Tessa, I said to Tessa, I've seen a lot of movies where the quarterback's supposed to be the love interest. I've seen so many teen movies and teen shows where the quarterback is supposed to be the love interest. And for the first time, I'm like, yeah, I see it. Can I hit, can I hit you both with another Verhoeven quote that I forgot to put in the notes? Yes. Verhoeven tried to read the novel, but, quote, stopped after two chapters because it was so boring. It's really quite a bad book. It's very right wing, end quote. <laughs> Yes, it is. It very much is. Also, Sam started singing You Belong With Me about halfway through this film. So that should tell you everything that you need to know about Sam's opinion of the love triangle. You know, I, you know. But is Denise Richards' character better than her Bond girl character? I don't know. Is she better than Christmas? I called, you know I called her Christmas all the way through the movie, too. So, like, don't (laughs) act like, ugh. This so Starship Troopers picks up on something that was like a thread that they the group the gang started in in RoboCop right so in RoboCop at the the station in downtown old Detroit it's all just the common locker room you have people of you know all all body types um, just changing together no one cares there's the famous kind of shower scene in Starship Troopers, where everybody's showering mm-hmm. together regardless of gender expression, and they're all talking about why they want to sign up and, and, and be citizens. And on one level, it's like, oh, that's cool. They, they don't care. But on the other hand, like it's Verhoeven's quota is intentionally doing that to talk about kind of the ways in which um, they're only dedicated to the cause, and like it basically fascism is the death of libido which is a very old man Dutch sort of like European attitude to, to, to do that. But I just wanted to talk about that shower scene a bit and get your, both your perspectives on that. Tessa's been talking about that shower scene. <laughs> I mean, we've been together for over seven years now. And I think she's been talking about it for just under seven years. <laughs> That scene is so fascinating to me for all the reasons that you just said. Have you read the article Everyone is Beautiful and No One is Horny by R.S. Benedict? No, but I have seen a Marvel movie. Was that an adaptation of that article? (laughs) They talk about Marvel movies a lot in this. I would really recommend it. I have it linked in the notes and I'll link it in the show notes as well because it's brilliant when talking about like what has happened to sex in films. But that is actually where they start by talking about that shower scene. The idea that they are like, nobody's flirting. No one's looking at each other. They're all talking about the cause, like they said. And I love this sentence, a room full of beautiful bare bodies and everyone is only horny for war. And so like that idea of 
that sexual like instinct being transformed into violence, like the way that um, that this society has made the military and violence and war the expression of self instead of other interests or other parts of the human psyche. It's just it's so well done because unlike the other films, there's very little sex like in this film, like very, very little. It's all subordinated to that military. I mean, Diz keeps trying. I mean, Diz does keep trying to be fair. Diz, Diz is like the most sexual character of, of this, uh, of this whole film. But one of the other quotes from the article is talking about how like all of the men in like, especially Marvel movies right now are all like ripped and they all have like eight packs and they're all like muscular, but it's not for sex. It's about the action sequences and like looking like action figures instead of like uh, like real human beings. And so the the quote is the impetus of this move of these movements isn't fitness for the sake of pleasure, for the pure joys of strength and physical beauty. It's competitive. It's about getting strong enough to fight the enemy, whoever that might be. And, you know, they talk a lot about, ta- uh, you know, 9-11 and how like that's like really influenced our our view of war, especially. But there is this idea, though, that like. The bugs are literally like dehumanized like opponent, right? Like you can't you can't um feel sorry for an insect, right? Like it doesn't matter. They're insects, right? We have to preserve the human race. And so the ways in which that is actually something that's been used to dehumanize human opponents like throughout history, it's just such an obvious metaphor, but at the same time, it's used so brilliantly in this. I think my favorite line is still a bug that can think offends me personally, which is just such a great line. But yeah, the idea of like he's he's looking at this again, that line from the other perspective, this idea of like, what if you had a society that didn't care about sex, only war, only violence? And what if violence was that release? this this is such a chronological ride these these four movies because it's like you start off with robocop and you're like i dig your scene man this is some fun sci-fi shit right here and then showgirls it's like wow okay man this is like i dig your scene oh not that one okay overall that was fun starship troopers was just entertaining as fuck and then you get to l and it's like record scratch which we'll get to but I mean, like this this movie was so much fun. It's a fun. It really movie. was. By the way, I love the inclusion of Michael Ironside, who is in Total Recall, but he's also Jester in Top Gun, and this film knows that. <laughs> this film knows we've seen Top Gun. Yeah. This film knows we've seen Michael Ironside in a dozen films where he's playing the same character, and. Verhoeven takes him to the bank and withdraws everything because like, I, I mean, and that's the, one of the other things that's great about Starship Troopers. It is, it's not just emulating uh, a B science fiction film and just doing that and relying on it. Right. You know, casting Ironside is great. I know you want to talk about our lead, Matt, so I'll leave that to you, but I want to say really quickly that, you know, Denise Richards, you know, there was a period where we were trying to make Denise Richards a thing, but Neil Patrick Harris, who I hadn't, you did not tell me was in this movie. That was a total surprise. I really like 
because you can plot this. You can see Doogie Hauser making his heel turn. Yeah. This, in is this, his movie. this is his showgirls. This is his Elizabeth and showgirls. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and th- but this is how he gets to Barney Stinson and How I Met Your Mother. It's the, this is the heel turn. It's, it's so. Uh, by the way, Michael Ironside is Canadian. Mm-hmm. 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 So he would, he would go on the Canadians we like list. <laughs> uh, now, you, you had an interesting note, Matt, about the star of our film. Casper Van Dean. Dean. I think I spelled it wrong on the notes, but it's Dean. It's D-E-I-N. Yeah, so when, like, the first half, or first act, at least, of this movie might as well be fascist 90210, right? It's the high school setting. It's the drama. It's like, you know. (laughs) Matt, do you know that Dina Meyer was a regular on Beverly Hills 90210? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's, Did you know that? that? That's where they went to like do the cat. That was the pools they were casting in for the main cast. Were yeah. were in those those type of of veins. Um, cast. She was a recurring character. I'm sorry. She was also in Giant Mnemonic with Keanu Reeves. Go also on. Also in the worst Star Trek movie. She's a nemesis. Um, which is the last TNG movie. Anyways, um, Casper Van Dien beat out Matt Damon and Mark Wahlberg for the role. Names that would get much bigger later. Because he looked more like the lead or the center of a Nazi propaganda poster. That jaw, everything else, it's, you know, they went with that. I think much like, I think you can make a lot about Casper Van Dien's performance. Um, He does come back for the third movie. But again, I think it's well cast, whether it's his acting ability or lack of acting ability. I think kind of like we were talking about with Elizabeth Berkeley and Nomi Malone, he is the very typical action lead. He is just this empty vessel mm-hmm. in which you're supposed to pour all of your feelings and hate and malice and, you know, empathy while everything else kind of, or lack of empathy that happens around him. I recently watched, uh, again, second time that the Criterion erotic thriller series that's during this month comes up, but I recently watched Last Seduction, did not like it, but it co-stars Peter Berg and watching this movie, it reminded me of something like, well, any Peter Berg movie, but particularly Lone Survivor, which then led me to Clint Eastwood and American Sniper, which again, Tessa, you bring up that kind of post 9-11 start of the fire and that kind of bloodlust as, as propaganda and everything else. I think you, you have a direct line to something like American Sniper or even um, Zero Dark Thirty as an example of operating like of a modern version of what I think Verhoeven is commenting on, right? In the specific kind of more modern American context with that here. But yeah, I also think Dina is is probably of the the three in the love triangle of the leads is probably the best performance too between her, Van Dien, and Richards. But yeah, I and I it's funny that you say the the Nazi propaganda poster, because there is a lot in this film about propaganda, obviously. I mean, he returns to that Robocop like Yeah like the news, like the breaking yeah. news segments and the, do you want to learn more? Which you thought the look of those was interesting because it kind of mimicked more of that nineties internet yeah, very type of look, yeah. which I think is interesting, but those, but those push harder into satire than the RoboCop ones. Like the RoboCop ones are there, but like that, I feel like if you don't know what this movie is by about a quarter of the way in and you see that scene where the Marines are handing children like automatic weapons in their propaganda 
photos or like propaganda videos and they're like uh, who wants to hold a gun? And the children are all like cheering, Yay! which of course hits a little different now, I think, than it did in the 90s. But it's still like, oh, that's what this movie is. Like the idea that like like the military, the military and violence have permeated every aspect of culture, including childhood. Um, and you get that later um when they're like everyone is doing their part and you see like the children stomping on the bugs like the the like little bugs on the ground like he's he's being sillier in this film because he can be because he is leaning into that science fiction b movie type thing but i almost feel like he has to in order to break us out of we're so used to watching these types of movies and like having those expectations and falling into identification with that character he almost has to like snap us out of it and be like no this is not good like what you are doing is is like not good that's part of the reason i've avoided the sequels because i didn't know how much is like direct to video sort of things they just leaned away from the satire and went into just straight like like that roughnecks cartoon right that used to air those the starship troopers like cartoon that was a little bit after this which is i again i watched it a little bit but i understand it was closer to like the novel and taking it kind of like straight faced or whatever right i just wanted to ask you both really quickly the idea of like a dehumanized opposition to like you know literal bugs giant bugs insects starship troopers versus aliens aliens being James Cameron's sequel to Alien and essentially his Vietnam movie. Which do you think works better for you in making that similar point? Why or why not? Laying my agenda on the table, I don't really like Aliens that much. I I mean, I don't think that's what Aliens is about it at all. I mean, there's the mom not, stuff. But... Not that... I, well, no, I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong about the, the comparison between the two, but... In rewatching that movie uh, a while back, not too long ago, it, it, it's like it's a lot like the Vin Diesel. Uh, is it Riddick or Pitch Black, Black or whatever? It's it's almost like the enemies are are MacGuffins, right? Except in Cameron's movie, they're fancy MacGuffins. You know, it's it's more about well. So in Starship Troopers, there there's some othering. You know, in response to Heinlein, right? You know, there's there's othering of the enemy and they matter for that reason. I don't really see a lot of that coming through in Aliens. What I see is the corporation. Okay, fair enough. Right, as the, as the real enemy. That, yeah, I mean, that's no, what I, I, ultimately, I that's yeah. what I think. It, it made sense once I got to the corporation. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry it took so no, long. No, but it was the interpersonal relationships and then the relationship to the corporation that I think mattered. The xenomorphs are neat i actually think they are different too but mainly because in aliens the setup is is that this is a human colony that the xenomorphs have like destroyed and they're they're trying to like contain the threat which we could talk about dehumanization in vietnam and all that stuff starship troopers is actually about colonization like they are attacking a species on their own home worlds for the most part. And for me, I think that's the most interesting part of the film that Verhoeven doesn't spend a lot of time on. But I actually think that might be a cultural thing because 
Americans, when they watch this film, they're not automatically, especially white Americans, are not automatically going to think about colonization because we like to not think of ourselves as colonizers. We like to be like, oh, that's a European thing. But the Dutch were like very obviously and very huge colonizers. And so I feel like for Verhoeven, this should be obvious. Like, it was, it was, yeah, it was six years before America started saying we fight them there so they won't fight us here. That hadn't happened yet. Right. Which is fascinating that this it's movie weird. kind of like yeah. Yeah. predicts. Yeah. yeah. It you, does, but yeah, totally. It does right. preempt 9-11, I think, in some really interesting ways. But like, if you look at it from that like Dutch perspective, I feel like he's almost like, yeah, like we're going to attack them there on their homework at world. And there's like a very brief mention at the beginning of the film. It's so short. You could miss it if you blink where they actually say something about, well, the reason this is a problem is because they're like blocking off essential natural resources that like earth is interested in and again if you're not paying attention you could miss it um but i think that is verhoeven saying this is colonization they're never gonna say this in their military propaganda they're gonna talk about you know safety of earth and revenge for buenos aires and all of this stuff but if you are all by white people all by white people uh but like if you are reading closely and if you start thinking about it from the bugs perspective which you're not supposed to right because propaganda is dehumanizing you start to realize that these bugs are literally defending their home <laughs> like they're they're literally trying to keep the human invaders out um and so it, it is a very subtle thing that he's doing but if you look at it you can see all the clues are there yeah i i and like it's a good thing that it's science fiction right because i can't see any government re misguiding facts and creating kind of you know lying and creating a false case to go to war and and then uh, and invade could you imagine someone. yeah i that i can't i can't see that ever <laughs> happening so <laughs> What did you think? This will be one of the last things I say. What did you think about the citizenship thing, which is a big thing for Heinlein? I thought it was like, it's it's an interesting concept. And like, even the idea, like, because Rack Jack, Michael Ironstein has that when he's talking about voting during the bidding and beginning and why citizenship is so important. And he's basically doing his ROTC recruitment speech. Um, the idea of voting is like an act of force and like inherent violence within that. And it's like, Within our system as we've designed it, I don't think <laughs> I, I think voting is like an element, but I don't think it's the necessarily be all end all to like systemic change. Um, and while like I do think, yeah, you can get your rights at the you know barrel of a gun and violence again can be used as a tool, it was just interesting that the value they put on voting not being that dissimilar from like a mainline kind of centrist liberal opinion too of the idea of like voting as an act of force or for change and that maybe having different or different effects right it's also interesting that uh rico's parents didn't want him to become a citizen and just be the nice you know academics or whatever that they were thought that was interesting but i mean just to just to point out here Harvard has become a, a, it is not the school we know it as of today. Like, you can just. Apparently you could just go to Harvard. You in can the just future. go to Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe he but was a legacy. why would you want though, to right? when you Isn't can. Isn't it easier when you're a legacy? Well, yeah, but 
the the whole point is you can get into Harvard because why would you want to go to Harvard? Join the military, you loser. Yeah, fair. Although I would also like to point out the irony of like Heinlein thought that if you were willing to die for your planet, I guess, that that meant you were responsible enough to have the vote. But if you think about a government that's completely formed of military people, they only have one solution to any problem. Like, it, it is a really interesting, like, vicious cycle that I think Verhoeven is also trying to explore here. But they'll be best friends forever. But we'll be best friends forever. It's a best friends movie, guys. Oh, my guys. God. All right. So, <laughs> I, okay. Listen, when we, put, when we drew this episode up, we were going to talk about three films because three is the number of films we talk about because Christianity, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's why we're covering Benedetta. No, just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, when it came to, I mean, obviously we were going to do RoboCop and Starship Troopers. And so Tessa asked Matt, you know, what, what, what have you not seen yet? What do you want to do? And he mentioned L and I'm like, that's great because I haven't seen that movie either, but we have to talk about showgirls. Tessa has not seen showgirls. When are we going to have a better opportunity to talk about showgirls than this? So that's why we're doing four films. That's why we're this deep in the episode and getting to our final film, L. Matt has a a one-word review of this film. I do as well. My review is, yikes. Hoo boy. What you got, Tessa? I'm, like, scared to say my... I I don't want to say I liked this film, and I'm not even sure it's a good film. This is Tessa's Showgirls. But I also kind of enjoyed it. Oh, Jesus. Like... This was my... It's Verhoeven does Hitchcock. Yeah, this was... I'm not saying it's... It, it's not as good as Decision to Leave. That's obviously a better version of Hitchcock, but <laughs> it's Verhoeven's version of Hitchcock. Of the four we watched, I think this is my favorite. Wow. I, I feel very uncomfortable saying know, that, but it's true. I know. This is why I was anxious to record. Tessa, you messaged me to make sure I was still good to record. And I said, yeah, at yeah, such and such a time. Also, I'm more anxious than normal. It's because of this movie. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to say this and then I'm going to lead into a short plot description and then we can come back to it. The movie I think there's a better version of this movie. And and it is for very specific reasons. It is a different movie plot-wise, but I'd say the worst person in the world is better than this. And that that gets at what I think this movie is about and and we'll we'll get there. But very quickly, Elle is about a woman named Michelle who at the beginning of the film is being being sexually assaulted, being raped by a ski-masked intruder. So nominally, the, the film is about her reluctance to bring law enforcement in because of a traumatic event from childhood while trying on her own to find the perpetrator of the co- crime, hijinks ensue. Hijinks ensue, and I have I have to say before we get started that Michelle, who's play uh, is played by Isabel uh, Hubert, who is phenomenal in this film. Who was nominated like, for an Oscar, and she was nominated for an Oscar for this role. Whatever you think about this film, which I could completely understand yeah. if why people wouldn't like this film, the fact that 
let's see, this was 2016. She just turned 70 this year. So she's in her 60s playing this character. And she's just, she's so good. Like everything about her in this film, I think is great. Um, But it is really about her. I mean, you wrote in here, Matt, that it is a character study of Michelle. Yeah, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard movie, period. Thank you. This has been so great. Let's move on to the closing. No, it's, it's a hard movie to kind (laughs) of identify what it is. Like it's a pitch black dramedy, like satire, like, yes, it was a lot funnier than I was expected, which seems like a really fucking weird thing to, to say in context of what this is about. But the scene where she destroys the front bumper of that car. So good. When she parallel parks. I mean, there's some really funny, intentionally funny moments in this movie for sure. But it's not, but the sexual violence isn't funny. No, like no, I was kind of all. worried that like, <laughs> like it is weird to say that this movie is incredibly funny, but it's not like making rape no. jokes. Like no, 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 it's no. so strange. It's just, yeah. It's, it is a like whiplash in tone. But in a way that's like measured really well. And so like it doesn't like at least for me, it didn't like it didn't the the tonal whiplash I didn't find is didn't grate on me. Like whereas we were talking about in Showgirls, it does when that like when when the sexual assault mm-hmm. comes up in like that movie. And like it okay, this movie isn't subtle, but for Paul Verhoeven it feels subtle. Like it feels measured by comparison, right? And every interaction that Michelle has in this movie is somehow about power, dominance, or position. I think her rape and her response to her rape and what she finds out over the course of her investigation is part of that. But I don't don't think that that is the be all end all um Manuel Lazic is a was a film critic and wrote for the, I don't know if she still writes for them but wrote for Little White Lies at the time that Verhoeven's point his thesis of this movie is the violence that Michelle suffers isn't isolated the rape the se- rape the sexual assault is just an extreme symptom of the misogyny that we see that permeates her life I think in terms of all of the rape or near rape scenes in which I have viewed over the last week and a half to, to prepare for this podcast. Cause again, I, I mentioned this scene earlier, but this, 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 the famous scene where Robocop shoots a guy in the dick is he's stopping a sexual assault, right? Yes. And I think of all of the sexual assault scenes, which again, premium theme we've talked about throughout the episode, this is probably, this is the least salaciously filmed. And I think it's, and again, I want to I want to acknowledge I am a white cis male talking about a again, rape happens to everyone, but it's very typically more often a, a, a gendered form of violence, right? It's not the salacious scene we talked about in Showgirls. And I know Sam, you wanted to get a point about that as well before I go on. Oh, I just and it's really interesting because you brought up complex PTSD, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh elsewhere in the notes, but I mean the the thing about this one is the the scene itself, which is the first scene of the movie, is as you said, the the least salaciously filmed. But we see it over and over again. And to me, 
I mean, I'm not going to say whether it's better or worse, but I, I, I think it, I mean, having to see it over and over again is, is no small thing. But she remembers it differently. Like she has, like she fantasizes about well, what if it happened, but I was able to beat and, him to well, death with an ashtray. And because like, we're being spoiler filled here, yeah. I mean, it happens again. Right. It, it, she remembers it. She remembers it. She, she, it happens. She remembers it. She fantasizes about how it should go differently. It happens again. I mean, it, it's a. Well, because her rapist is stalking her. Yeah. basically right which but, is where a lot of the tension of the film comes right for him that's that's it please go on matt <laughs> yeah like you're saying like i think like in terms of like the flashbacks like my generous read is again it's it's talking about like complex ptsd and the mm-hmm. way in which you know survivors kind of can can relive things and be triggered by it and, and whatever i think that could potentially be an overly generous read um i don't know if that was in consideration or not Maybe, maybe not. I think in a lot of like the one that no one and I'll I'll bring it up to like push back on it. So maybe this isn't this is like a a straw man sort of, sort of or straw person sort of case. A major criticism of this movie looks reads it as Michelle having a sort of sexual awakening as a result of her sexual assault. That is not how I write this film at all. No. I, I, I think again, it, it goes back to the idea of like power and dominance. And we talked about um, during Noir Vember with Basic Instinct that for Michael Douglas's character, Nick, sex was all about power and it was just about tops and bottoms, right? Mm-hmm. And I think within the context of the world Michelle lives in, that's another expression of the power and the dominance. And again, position top or bottom within that as she finds out that her rapist and stalker is her neighbor who can only have sex within the context of a rape scene or a full-on sexual assault that's where i think some of the the messiness i'm not going to say it's complexity it's i'll just call it messy of of the film kind of exists because before she knows that her stalker and rapist is her neighbor she tries to have an affair with him and it doesn't work out and then through the sake like you know when she's assaulted the second time she manages to pull the mask off and realizes that it's it's the neighbor and then continues to engage and kind of is in this like cat and mouse consensual non-consensual sort of unnegotiated sort of scene there and that's where it gets kind of complex and messy but yeah it's she's a sexual being and exists and has sexual desire before the assault she's sleeping with her her best friend's husband so yeah it's it's not a it's not a sexual awakening movie by any stretch of the imagination i think that's well and like i said at the beginning of the episode verhoven very carefully said this is not an erotic thriller like the only way it would be an erotic thriller is if you find rape erotic and so like that that is what he said his words um and so like i i actually think what he's doing here is trying to show that a lot of rape survivors often have complex and nuanced reactions and they're not always the same Um, some rape survivors become hypersexual after rape. Some rape survivors see sex. You know, some of them have, you know, go on normally. I think some of 
what this film is also trying to do is show that like she still has to live her life. Like it doesn't just like stop after that first scene, right? And so like there is this sense that she's trying to like live her life but makes sense of this and do this investigation because she is being stalked. You know, she's receiving these creepy messages and, you know, all of that. And there's there's all of these things that happen at her work, which, by the way, she's a co-CEO of a video game company, a place that's known for its uh, non-misogynistic attitudes towards women. Um, so I think that that's a that's I a really good I don't think you point. said that sarcastically enough. Yeah. That, that actually <laughs> came across as if you thought that. Yeah, no, no. Okay. Actually, I, what I said to Sam was... Uh, only in a only in a film only in a fictional context in a film would you have a video game company that's owned by two women. <laughs> anyway, um, I can't think of a single bro. real one. I would be love to hear that if people if people they actually even know name check one. Activision in the movie is like one of be interesting yeah. or whatever. And Activision or Blizzard Activision being one of the more high profile yeah. um, misogynist cultures that's come up lately. But exactly, um, honestly, though, and I. I, we should have probably said this beforehand. This movie does benefit from just watching it without knowing anything. This is going to be spoiler-filled conversation. I kind of read the messiness of the end where she continues to engage with him. Like, from the moment that she calls him, because she gets in a car wreck and she calls him, which is honestly kind of funny, like, because he shows up and he's clearly not sure, like, why she called him and like she's playing it very straight but she starts kind of taunting him a little bit like like you know was it good for you and like all of this stuff I read it as this was her trying to like regain control Mm -hmm. over him um because uh the thing we haven't really talked about yet is that she doesn't have a good history with the police because her father is basically a serial killer and that mirrors a lot of rape survivors experience with police they're often not believed or like not taken seriously or something like that she just skips that step altogether and i think what she sees is her only recourse in gaining that control back over him which she eventually uses to lead him to his demise is that like i need to regain sexual power over the situation that's how i read that last Mm -hmm. act of the film but Sam, you have a different theory about I what this do. film is about. I okay, all right. Now I'm I'm not gonna say that everything we've been talking about is a red herring for what the movie's actually about, but it could be. Uh, what I will say for sure is that I'm a much better academic than movie critic because when I find my thing, when I find my through line, that's what matters because that's what I'm gonna talk about. So. I don't know if I could make a whole grand theory around this, uh, you know, saying that this is what the movie's actually about, but I would try given the, given the opportunity. So here's what the movie's about. The movie is about Michelle, about her attitude toward dishonesty. She hates it. She hates it. And that's what, you know, she's able to start a relationship with her rapist because at least he's honest about what he wants. She doesn't fire the dude who made the it can't be revenge porn there was no revenge there just porn of her and doesn't you know just because he comes clean about it he 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 says oh i did that and it's fine she acknowledges her mom's boyfriend is using her she doesn't respect that her mom won't 
cop to it, but she does in a weird way respect the dude for doing it. She doesn't, she respects in a weird way her son's girlfriend for not making any bones about the fact that she doesn't really think the child is his. And she hates that her kid can't realize that. The the neighbor, the, you know, the wife, she she's like, okay, you're an idiot because you have faith, Christianity, whatever. But okay, I respect it. But here's the thing. What really gets me about this movie is she's been having an affair with her best friend and co-CEO or whatever. She's been having an affair with her husband for months, has not gotten caught does a sex act that she knows will cause her to get caught so that she can have it out and admit to what she did. Why does this happen? You could say it's because of the assault, but I'm not going to. I'm going to say it's because of an indirect result of the assault. She ends up spending the night in bed with her friend who reminds her, remember how we almost did this years and years ago? And so after everything's gone down, you know, she sees, she goes to her mother's, uh, I don't know what they call those, like the, the grave or the equivalent thereof. The mausoleum. Yeah. And her best friend shows up and says, you know, that was a shitty thing for you to do. And she's like, well, actually it was beyond shitty. It was reprehensible. And she's like, what, what's up? And she's like, well, I left him. He's an asshole and he's drinking now. And she's like, that's great. Anyway, I have to sell the house. Think I could move in with you for a while? You want to? Walk off into the sunset. That's what the movie's about to me. It's about this. It is an exploration, but it's an exploration of what it means to admit to what you really want and to be honest with other people about it. And the fact that it involves what it involves in this movie is super messy. But when you look at the end, it's like this is... This is the completion of a journey that didn't start with the event at the beginning of the movie, but it's what catalyzed it and made sure that it would happen. There you go. That's it. And that's why I compare it to the worst person in the world, by the way. There's even like at the last scene with neighbor who took the now deceased rapist who got bonked in the head by the sun. She even alludes to the fact that she knew the whole time too. Right. And talks about the darkness that was in her husband and like, thanks Michelle for like helping him out with that for a bit or whatever, which complicated, but yeah, no, I guess that's another point towards the idea of honesty, dishonesty, identity, whatever, whatever. Well, I think it was really interesting too. They don't make a big thing out of it, but is in a, a, her son's in a very messy polyamorous relationship. That's made clear. And like it's it's messy as fuck. But she's not mad about that. She's mad about the fact that he's being taken advantage of. It's like, whatever, man. Do whatever you want. Just don't be an idiot. Well, yeah, I, I she seems that, fine once but he's able yeah, to admit that like, what he really wants is a child. It's like yeah. one, it's like the it, everything's fine. Everything can be fine if we're if we're if everybody's on board with it, it seems like everything's just okay, but we're still getting in our own ways by lying and obfuscating the truth, and there seems just to be a shitload of that going on. Well, and even her ex-husband's yoga trick mm-hmm. girlfriend, like, read the author's the same name, and they broke up because got authors confused or whatever, right? Like... 
Who does that happen to? Man. That was funny. That Sucks. was great. It's like it's like Senator Stephen King getting a fan. <laughs> no, that I would never happen. I have to say that, I mean, this movie is messy and obviously there's a lot about rape and sexual violence that may or may not be what it is what it is. The black baby thing is a it's racist. Like I in a very particular it's very French, French way. and Dutch. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. like that is absolutely not how genetics or babies work. So I yeah, that made me very uncomfortable. I mean, the, I understand this character is not a paragon of virtue. Like this movie makes it very clear that she's not. And I'm totally fine with that. But there were other ways you could have done this. You didn't have to like fall into a racist like stereotype anyway. Especially because there's no other black people in this film. I still haven't rated this on Letterboxd because I have no idea what no. star rating to give it. So if I might, to close out this podcast, what have we learned today? That the world is a vampire sent to drain secret destroyers, hold us up to the flame. The world is violence and power and control resides with those who harness it mm. and then continue to perpetuate the violence. That's what I learned watching all these yes. Paul Verhoeven movies. Despite all of our rage, we are still, in fact, rats in a cage. Ask yourself who's screwing you. Uh, no, Billy Corgan did not say that, Tessa. You've had your time. <laughs> no, where, are we going? Like, <laughs> I think I learned that I kind of like messy films. Like, I mean, I think I knew that beforehand, yeah. but like this, that's, this, confirmed, that's who this we project are. confirmed it. That's yeah. who we are on Mumble. We watch messy films. Jordan Hoffman, I think he's a freelance critic, but he was re when reviewing L for Vanity Fair. Um, this was a, a quote from like the the lead on the Rotten Tomatoes. I can't exactly call L a movie I feel good about liking, but I can't get it out of my head either. And like, how fun is it to be challenged by something and then have to think about mm -hmm. it and then like have an avenue like this to discuss it? in the environment in which we know we're all coming at it in, in good faith and yeah. can look at it from different angles and like not discourse a movie, but discuss a movie, discuss like a yeah. challenging well, yeah. piece of art. You know, back in, in March, you know, I remember saying that I just don't think we had a particularly good award season crop of films. And this is why. I, I, what you just said is the reason why we didn't, it's not that they weren't pretty. It's not that they weren't well acted or well directed or sometimes I think I, I find difficulty pointing at what was wrong with this year's crop, but that's it. I mean, you compare that to drive my car, the worst person in the world are two films that immediately come to mind. As movies that just, you know, somebody was sneaking up behind me with, you know, big stick to just hit me over the head and go, you will never stop thinking about this for, for, for quite a while here. You know, decision to leave. Didn't even get fucking nominated. That's the movie that did that this year. You know, and, and uh, I think maybe that there's a lot to that there. And so, yeah, we like messy movies here at Mumble. Well, and the other thing, just to go back to everyone is beautiful and no one is horny, as much as I find some of the sexual content specifically around rape problematic in Verhoeven or unnecessary in Verhoeven, 
I have just I like watching films that films that want to talk about sex again. <laughs> like, you know, like I like I like it when when people who are making films treat human beings like they're sexual <laughs> and not just, you know, war machines or Marvel action figures. Mm. So who's psyched for Hollow Man this spooktober? We're going to go back to the Verhoeven well. Thank you, Kevin Bacon. You are a treasure. The Invisible Man is often a a like male power fantasy, even going back to James Whale's 1933 mm-hmm. version. And the Invisible Man is also naked. God reigns. And, and the Invisible Man's also naked all the time. So what could go wrong with a Paul Verhoeven version of that? I'm sure it will be completely unproblematic. <laughs> a male power fantasy we have fun where here at monkey off my back all the time. Yep. Nope. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing no. there for for all for Polly to dig into. Nope. Not at all. Oh, Elizabeth Shue comes up again. There we go. It's all back to the, we did the other it. conversation. Next time, Elise book challenge. Be there. <laughs> what more could I say? April is our co- comedian month. It's a book written by a comedian. Is that an elaborate April Fool's joke? Well, if you've met me, no, it isn't. <laughs> Matt, where can people find you online? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at, at Maddie Hugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can also catch the aforementioned Elise and I talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine on our Star Trek podcast, The Pod Race. We are on a little bit of a mid-season, between-season hiatus right now, but we'll be starting season four very shortly. Tessa. You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ox Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. By the time this episode comes out, we should have just released our episode on Nightwatch. You can also find my writing on androids and cyborgs on moviejohn.com. That's moviejawn.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine and on Letterboxd and Storygraph at Melody Valentine. We'd like to know your thoughts on Paul Verhoeven. (laughs) We'd like to know your thoughts on Paul Verhoeven or who you'd like the subject of our next director spotlight to be. We also plan on doing a follow up to our camp episode from last year sometime in the future. So let us know what we should be considering for that episode. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog and in our Discord community linked in the show notes. You can also email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review. You should do both if you could. Please take a moment to rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. We did it.